Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But in this podcast, we're not talking about horse training. Instead, we're learning about how horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people have land. We need healthy pastures for our horses. Becoming better stewards of the land under our care helps to create those healthy pastures. And it turns out it's a win-win-win situation. What we do is good for our horses, it's good for us, and it's good for the planet. If you've been listening to the recent episodes of this podcast, you know that I've been looking at the work of Dr. Doug Tallamy. Dr. Tallamy is an entomologist who's been looking at alarm at the decline in biodiversity. And he's launched, in his words, a grassroots call to action to restore biodiversity and ecosystem function by planting native plants and creating new ecological networks. Dr. Tallamy isn't looking at public lands in his conservation initiative. Instead, he's calling on private landowners to join what he calls the largest cooperative conservation project ever conceived or attempted. The goal is 20 million acres of native plantings in the U.S. Sound impossible? Well, what I've learned from horses is major change begins with small foundation steps. So what are the land management steps we could all be taking? That's what I want to explore. In the coming weeks, I'm going to visit with friends from around the planet who are making changes to the land under their care. Dr. Tallamy is the expert. You can go to homegrownnationalpark.com to learn more about his work. In these podcasts, I want to support his work by sharing ways in which people are implementing the kind of changes he's advocating. A teacher is someone who started before you. I have always loved that definition. Dr. Tallamy has definitely started before me in, in terms of looking at my land, my garden, in terms of ecological function. What should I be planting? And in many ways, the people I'm going to be interviewing are also people who have started before me in terms of managing horse properties. I'm going to be visiting with people who are way ahead of the game uh, in terms of what they've been doing with their property. And I'm also going to be interviewing people who are at the start of the process. And I think the mix and the variety and having people from lots of different geographic areas will really help inspire us all and provide us with a lot of ideas and resources and places to look in our area for resources that can help us to get started. So I'm going to begin this part of the series with a set of interviews. They make a great pairing. So I have an interview with two individuals. Both individuals have 20 acres and both have to deal with very high winds. But there the similarities end. You're about to meet Julia Fields. Julia lives in Australia. She's in a very dry climate, so water management is a high priority. 
And Julia has been on her property for about 14 years. And she's been at this process of restoring her property to a more natural native landscape for the entire time that she's been on, on her property. So she's definitely well into the process. In fact, Julia has koala bears. I just love that idea. I mean, what fun to have kangaroos and koala bears in your backyard. So I'm going to be following my interview with Julia with another friend, Amanda Martin. Amanda lives in a completely different part of the world. She lives in Scotland. She bought 20 acres for her horses about three years ago. So she's at the very beginning of this process of figuring out what to do. Julia has a problem with not having enough water, and Amanda has the opposite problem. She has way too much water sitting on her land. Blocked drains, neglected fields that are overgrown with rushes, that's her starting point when she looks across her landscape. I'm hoping these conversations will give you ideas for your own land. Amanda and Julia are going to be talking about resources and grants that were available to them in their area. And I'm hoping that that will give you an idea of the kinds of resources that may be available for you in your area, the kind of resources that you can research to see what options may be available to you. And if we all share what is working for us, together we can make a difference. So first, it's a Zoom trip to Australia. Enjoy. So I assume the weather there is not like the weather here, that you're no. hot? Hot. So it's 35 degrees C here, which I was trying to work out what to do in Fahrenheit. I think that's a lot. <laughs> yes, it is. That's um, 35 is it's 95 degrees. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really... Um, it's really hot and it means that everything happens really early in the morning. So yeah. so what's the weather like where you are? Is it snowing? We've had a little bit of snow. We've had a lot of rain. Yeah. It's coldish, but yeah. for our part of the world, it's actually fairly mild oh. for January. So yeah. it's, um, okay. you know that it's winter. It's just cold enough to be winter. There's just enough snow on the ground to remind yeah. you that it's winter but so far knock on knock on something it's been a comfortable winter oh good yeah 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 our summer has been well this is the first very hot day we've had in a long time and uh at night last night uh, last week the temperatures were going down to three and four degrees overnight here which wow. is it's cold yeah it's not yeah. normal and then the daytime temperatures were only getting to 20 degrees, um, which is also unheard of. But Western Australia, they've had a heat wave for a couple of, oh, I think, for about seven days. And, and that weather comes across to where I am. Um, it takes its time, but it usually comes across faster. But what's happened is that the weather further in the north, uh, the north of Australia and the east coast, that weather's been coming down the middle of Australia and blocking the weather, sort of deflecting the weather from Western Australia. So we haven't had those really hot spells. So remind me again where you are. 
So I'm in South Australia, I'm in Adelaide, and if you looked at a map of Australia where I am is in the middle of Australia down the, on the southern southern coast of Australia. Okay. Where I am is quite arid or Mediterranean. Yeah. Okay. So that was going to be my question. So you're you're typically arid. Is that around the around year round? No, I'd say when I say arid, I should really it's more sort of Mediterranean. So we we have very dry, hot summers with very low humidity. Okay. Um, and then we have autumn, which isn't isn't hot, but it sometimes it's windy and our rain starts again in usually about March or April, the rainfall happens. So we get very little rainfall usually over the summer months. So from October to February, there's not very much rain. Then we go into winter where we get where I am, we can go down to minus minus two um, at the most. Okay, and so not very cold. Not very cold, but sometimes super hot oven temperatures in the summer. So it can, the hottest day I've lived through here was 48.5 <gasps> degrees, which, oh. was, <laughs> which was just unbelievably hot it uh, it was you walked outside and it was so hot it took your breath away um, so that's that's 118 degrees fahrenheit yeah, yeah. i just did the yeah. quick conversion wow yeah it's it's really uh it's very difficult to do anything in that yes. weather the fire danger then is astronomically high because everything is very dry and so one one spark of anything will start a fire very easily. And then if it's windy, then it's very, very dangerous. So it's always a bit scary living where we live in the summer because the threat of fire is very real. And then our winters are quite cold and rainy usually. And then spring's usually really, really lovely, sunny days, very crisp air and it can be windy, but most of the time spring's probably the best time here. So when I compared to where I live, yeah. I mean I would have to do a complete relearning of how to how to grow things, how to manage horses. Yes. If I were if I were suddenly transported to where you live, yes. I would be absolute total I haven't a clue even where to begin beginner yeah yeah and it's the same if I was the opposite you know I, I no. uh, and even in places within the state they have different climates and different soils and so where I grew up it was dairy farming country so high rainfall very deep loamy soils you didn't have to do much to the pasture to keep it very, very good for the cattle. And the soil profile was naturally very healthy. And then yeah. in my early 30s, I moved to, to the beach and that meant I was gardening in sand and the soil was water repellent. So I had to find, learn ways of how to garden with soil that didn't really want to be, well, soil that wasn't soil. Um, yes. And then all the plants that I liked growing didn't grow there. 
So we had good water supply, but just very poor soil. And now where we are, we've got quite good soil and we don't have water that comes to the house from big reservoirs. We have to collect and save all our own water in, um, in tanks. So we're, early on we were quite limited and I wanted to have this huge expansive garden because we have 20 acres and I went a bit mental planting things and then didn't have enough water to keep them all alive, which was disappointing. So I've had to learn how to be a little bit more reserved in my gardening, but um, yeah. So let's paint a picture. So you have 20 acres. What shape? What does the land look like? So I live in a place which was one of the original settlements in Adelaide. There was one on the river uh, right in the centre of the city, where the city is now located, and then there was one not far from where our property is. Where I live, the land is quite hilly. We're on the, uh, so the Mount Barker summit is the highest point, and our land is a long rectangle of land uh, and we are the flattest land in the area because we run along the southern spine of, of the Mount Barker summit. So the land comes okay. down and then it tapers off and where that long, we run along that spine, which is quite flat, it's slightly undulating, but quite flat. And we're surrounded by quite steep gullies and uh, well very steep gullies Um, so we're on top of a hill and so we can get very strong winds that come Mm -hmm. through the gullies which are are very interesting the horses uh, learn how to deal with wind very quickly when they live here so I can go anywhere and it can be windy and they're they're just like well this is better than at home so um, (laughs) And, it's um, like the Icelandics, you know, when they came over from Iceland yeah. and the, the wind would, would ripple in, when we were in the arena. You could hear the wind rippling the, the ceiling. ceiling and yeah. It sounded sometimes like the ceiling was going to, to blow away. Yeah. And the other horses would all be, oh, we don't like it in here. And the Icelandics would be, wind? What wind? <laughs> yes. This isn't windy. <laughs> That's right. That's like all the, all the horses I've had have been there. They're all very good in the wind, so um, I hate the wind. If there weren't people, yes, what would the land look like? What would be growing on okay. it if, if there weren't people? <clears throat> okay, so if there weren't people, there would be lots and lots of um, the indigenous gum tree species, which they form the top canopy of the hillsides. It's grassland with pockets of what what Australians call scrub, which is small bushes, um, which is a good story. And then there would be a smattering of gum trees. And the cool thing about gum trees is they're very clever. They, They grow together as a group, but the strongest gum trees are usually the ones that grow on to be the big, big, big ones. And there are certain species of gum trees called river red gums, which are populated in this area. And the good thing about them is is when you find a really big one that's a couple of hundred years old to sustain that tree because usually they have a trunk that's massive they found artesian water so their roots have gone down far enough to find water way below the ground 
through the rocks and the you know the the yeah the rock layer so they sustain themselves on that water so we have very very big trees we've got one on our property that one of the local arborists said would be over over 2 to 250 years old like it's wow it's huge and it it to give you an idea it dropped one limb a few years back when we had very very strong wind and the wood that came out of that limb was 80 tons of wood um, so that kept us going it was full of borers and, and and it couldn't be salvaged i wanted to use i wanted to mill slabs of it to use yes but it couldn't be saved unfortunately because the borers the reason why it fell down was borers had got into it and weakened it and then the structure of the wood was no good um but that tree i think kept us going for about seven years of wood over the winter it was ridiculous wow. so there's there's a lot of native indigenous plants that the mount barker summit near us is a, is a little mini national park in itself there are lots of plants there that give hints of what it would look like if we weren't here and so there's tiny tiny little flowers and we have tiny miniature orchids and all sorts of um, absolutely delightful little plants that if you don't look down and you don't you, you don't notice everything you'll meet yes. them because they're they're not showy flowers they do their job and then we have other plants that in the spring they're called um, acacias and they're just covered in yellow flowers full of bees and the uh, honey-eating birds go after them so it's it's fairly I would say the tops of the hills are generally covered with more the smaller growing plants and a few big trees. And then when you get into the gullies where there is water and, and it's probably more of a little bit of a microclimate, then it's quite close-packed shrubs and the little softer plants and a few very big trees. And then there's areas of open grasslands that sort of go up the sides of the gullies. And there are, it is quite a rocky areas so there are outcrops of rock that my husband says when we're building fences must go to China because <laughs> you have to drill through these rocks and, and 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 sometimes we just fence lines I would like a nice straight, straight fence line and the fence line goes off on a wonky angle because we just can't get a fence post in yes thankfully the area that we're in it was previously in the 1800s it was cleared for farming so there are a lot of big trees that we know were there because there's big indentations in the ground where they've chopped the tree down and then they would have burnt the stump so that left a crater where the tree where the um the ground subsided and um our property it'll give you an idea of what it looks like it was the airstrip for the planes that they would use to uh, broadcast fertilizer <laughs> oh so they would and I found this out only a couple of weeks ago so they would load the planes up with superphosphate and then they would use the planes to broadcast the superphosphate over all the hillsides for the broad acre farming to to grow more grass for the for the livestock and then someone early on in the 1800s thought clover was a really great thing 
So they introduced clover and the uh, emblem for Mount Barker for the area that, that I'm in is a clover leaf um, <laughs> because <laughs> we, have this, we have this clover that was brought over from the UK and it is everywhere and most horse people don't like clover at all yes so they good reason yeah they spend 99 percent of their time eradicating it but what we do is something slightly different because it does have some benefits and despite trying to get rid of it you just you can't I mean it just comes back every year so so that was going to be my my next question of that's what the land would have looked like or would have been like before the Europeans began yeah. their settlement. Yeah. What has the land changed? Typically, if you're driving through, yeah. What kind of land use would you see? Yeah. Uh, around you, what would be a typical? Um, yeah. Planted clover. What else have they done? Oh yeah. So so they planted clover and they they cleared a lot of the understory scrub plants that are really great protection for smaller marsupials and birds and and habitat basically so they cleared the habitat and they left big trees that provided shade for livestock that weren't in the way and so what ended up happening was the land became more grazing land for beef cattle and around here it's beef cattle and sheep mainly and then there is an area that's almost like a a a river floodplain about five minutes drive from me where there is a huge market garden and so they have been farming that land since the late 1800s early 1900s and so it's the same family have been there the whole time they grow brassicas and all sorts of things on their property and uh, they grow this, they, they bred this really cool thing that's a cross between kale and a Brussels sprout. Oh. So they look like a Brussels sprout, but they taste, they've got kale type frilly leaves. They're really interesting. And they're called kaleettes. And we, when they're in season, they have a roadside stall. And so we, we buy them. Um, and I'm sure that over the years, this has just perpetuated and got more complex, but this would have been how all the vegetables were sold, you know, back in the 1800s. Yes. So there's a lot of grapes have been planted around us as well. So the climate is very good for certain varieties of grapes. So there's quite a few big vineyards. What else is there around us? Um, There are quite a few very large scale organic um, market gardens as well which you wouldn't know were there unless you knew they were there and so th- there's more I think farming's moved from the day when they would spread superphosphate everywhere and lime because the soil is slightly acidic so to get good pasture growth they would be spreading lime and superphosphate now there's a lot more organic principles being adopted and about half an hour away from us to the east, there is a very large organic fertiliser factory that converts the waste from chicken farms, so the, the high high density chicken farming in the big sheds yes. for meat birds. So they have a bed of 
sawdust and other things. And what this company does is collects all the sawdust and the chicken droppings, and then they compost it and add other nutrients into it. And it comes out as a biological fertilizer and their products are being used more and more over from what I can see with the farmers that I know that would traditionally use a traditional type fertilizer. They're moving more towards fertilizers that offer more to the ground than just pure boost for the plant. And so we're, we're quite lucky really because the, the wineries here are lovely and the, the, the wine they make is absolutely beautiful. <laughs> and we have some very talented winemakers. And so in the Adelaide Hills, it's usually, like I said, beef, sheep, wine, vegetables, lots of fruit. So there's a lot of fruit orchards as well, um, large scale orchards. And then um, there are other farms that grow, that have goats that they grow for, oh, and venison. So, so so it's sort of like um, uh, mixed agricultural production. So on your property, what so what kind of soil do you have? Well, we're very lucky. We have a sandy loam soil, which is, uh, I yeah, that was yes. one of the first things I looked at when we moved here. It was like, right, what's the soil like? And I, I when we came to the first open inspection, I had a little trowel in my back pocket. <laughs> and we went off away yeah. away from the house and anyone where they could see us and I'm digging little holes <laughs> and uh, my husband thought I was nuts but um, so we have sandy loam but we don't have a very deep soil profile so I've probably got if I'm lucky in most areas I've probably got five to six hundred mil so maybe half so probably about that much topsoil foot okay footish there's a variety of different rock so uh and in some places the rock is very close or coming out of the ground so if you can imagine we're on top of a hill and over the years the sandy loam being so such a lighter soil it's yes it's it's come down off the top of the hill and been lost just and, and through the removal of vegetation and agricultural practices and far, farming where they tilled the soil rather than what we call tickling it. Um, so they turned the soil over and then you, you, you get a lot more erosion if you do that. So we've, yeah, we're very lucky. We don't have a lot of clay. Um, we have one area of clay but that's sort of on the corner, one of the corners of my arena and it's just the way the soil profile is there. But the rest of it, we're very lucky. And where there's no rock, we've got, we've got patches of very deep topsoil and subsoil. So, so it's quite hit and miss. I often think I wish I could see what was below the surface, especially when you yes. put a shovel in and you think that you're going to go straight in and you hit a rock and <laughs> you sort of get this jolt. And <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, yeah. But we've spent, oh, uh, I can't think of how many countless hours of collecting horse manure and then putting it in areas over a couple of years to build up the soil profile and add more organic matter into the soil to start 
we start a bed, as my husband says, oh, we're starting a new bed, are we, when he sees me putting <laughs> putting manure somewhere different. So, yeah, this, we're lucky with the soil. Oh, yeah. I would do sand again. So let's get to what you've been doing because when you when you emailed me that one time where you said, yes, we planted, what was it, 3,000 native plants? Yeah. Why did that make my ears perk forward? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so what have you been up to? Okay, so so we we bought the property in 2006 and in 2006 there was 15 trees on the property and the majority of them were natives, but there were there were not enough trees for 20 acres and so what we did was we um we became members of a not-for-profit group called Trees for Life who are funded by donations and I think they get funding from the government to help to revegetate and restore the environment using the indigenous species from each region of, of South Australia. And so we became members and uh, they have a very good ordering system where you can choose you can let them choose for you or you can choose what you would like and they provide you with species that will grow or are endemic to your area. So sometimes what happens with native species is that people plant natives thinking they're doing the right thing, but certain native trees or shrubs in certain climates can actually become environmental weeds. So they then out-compete the things that actually do belong there. Which Native does not necessarily mean to Australia. Yeah. You have to look at native to your region. Yeah. Native in Australia, how's the best thing to describe it? There are certain plants from certain regions away from my region that would compete with the local species yes. because uh, they're stronger plants or that yes. they have adapted. Yes. So even yes. some Australian natives in the wrong climate can become environmental weeds yes. and then some, sometimes they get spread by birds, meaning that then they become the more dominant species when they shouldn't be in that area yes so we went and assessed um, all the different plants that we could plant and for me it was cutting down the wind was the main thing slowing the wind being on top of a hill I wanted to slow the wind velocity down so we for the first four or five years we planted in a way that would create windbreaks um for other plantings and then prior to that we'd mapped out where we wanted to put nature corridors for kangaroos and koalas and birds and all our local animal species native animal species so we set the property up by looking at where they where their tracks were where they traveled naturally yes. and we took quite a few fences down, which my husband was going mad at me at the time saying, why are we taking fences down? So I realigned where everything went and I just blamed the rock. I didn't, I, in the end, I said to him, it's because this is, look where the kangaroos go. This is, this is, 
and they would like to have a bit of protections. So we chose species that would grow and create all the levels that would provide a good windbreak. Um, and we did that. So from 2006 to now, we've been here 15 years and each year for, I wrote myself some notes, I think it was, it's been the last 10 years or so, we've planted on average 500 wow. trees and shrubs and tiny little understory plants every year. Each year it got harder for me to tempt my husband into going out and planting <laughs> because you plant when it's going to rain in the late autumn, early winter. So it's freezing, um, it's windy, it's usually raining and it's not the type of weather you want to be outside in. And then I'm saying to him, this is the perfect weather for planting. We're going to be planting tomorrow afternoon. And so I found the best success was to take a bottle of red wine and or port and some cheese and pack a little hamper and say, would you like to come out with me? And so <laughs> that worked really well. It helped us get very random plantings. <laughs> and so, yes, we, we, we've done that. And what we have now is um, the, so many trees and we have all those the plantings that I did to reduce the wind have done the job that they were planted to do because when I look at across the valley or even down through our property, down to where my neighbour's property is, I can see the wind. I have to look up in the trees to see whether the wind yes. is blowing because the wind is slowed down so much through our property now especially from the West, which it, it gets very, very strong winds from the West. And I say to my husband, look at that. You can see the winds going around us. It's coming through our property, but it's not coming through it like a freight train. And it's just hammering our neighbour's property. So what that's done is it then allows me to plant things that don't like as much wind and need more protection. And so I'm of the original plantings as they die, which is what they were, they were planted to grow very fast, which some species do, and then they die. Um, but they're uh, plants that have an amazing ability to add nitrogen to the soil naturally. So there's a lot of Australian natives that are um, indigenous to this area that are called wattles. And what they do is they fix nitrogen on little nodes on their roots and yes so they then provide by doing that they then provide food for other nutrients for other plants that are planted close by and then when they die their roots uh, an underground body starts to decompose and provides food so they're they're amazing and they grow so fast they're so pretty they get beautiful yellow flowers on them. They sustain all sorts of butterflies and birds. And so, and I'm quite obsessed with them. So at one stage I had too many of those and then I'd got advice from one of the local native plant specialists. He came out and he had a look and saw what I was doing and gave me some advice. And he said, oh, I've got a lot of wattles. You know, you want to be careful that you're not just 
becoming, you know, a place of wattles because that's not good either to just have one species. And I thought about it and thought, actually, that's, you know, just having us too much of one species. That was another learning experience. So, so now the corridors are about 14 years old now. And oh boy, do they work. They're fabulous. We have koalas, which you rarely see here. And they, because they can come, there's a creek not far down the steep gully at the back of us, there is a creek and it's spring fed. There's a lot of wildlife that comes there. And one of our corridors sort of goes as far as it can go on our property. And then the land gets very steep after our property and that goes down to the spring. So what we think is happening is these koalas and the kangaroos are working out that they can actually come up the hill from being in the steep gully and find food and shelter. And so, and then they can go down the hill and find water, although now we've got water for them as well here. So we're seeing lots and lots of koalas, which is, I just love them. I'm going to stop us here. We're halfway through this conversation with Julia. Next week, we'll continue on with her description of the wildlife that has moved back to her property. She'll tell us more about the koala bears and share kangaroo hopping lessons. Yes, that's right. Hopping lessons for a baby kangaroo. These are delightful reinforcers for all the hard work that she and her husband have put into bringing native trees back to their land. Julia is showing us that horse people truly can make a difference. Together, we're learning how. <laughs>